The scripture reading this morning is from uh, Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dam and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill them. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit. So that as the word is proclaimed today by Pastor Andrew, you would bless him. And we 
would receive what is being revealed with joy and understanding. Help us also to apply what we learn so that we reflect your word as we go forward this week. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Sean, for leading us to the throne of grace. Great to have Sean on board with the session, serving as an elder now. Very excited about opening the book of Exodus with you. Um, you know, you love all of God's Word, but for some reason, the ideas of Exodus and the world that we live in have just been coalescing in my mind, uh, which can be dangerous. Uh, but uh, I pray that the Lord gives us grace to articulate them well, and they'll be a blessing to you. Um, I want to start out with uh, a quote from a journalist. Her name is Allie Pearson, and she says this. She says, what is new and dangerous is the ability to post selfies and then wait around for approval to come flooding in. You don't have to spend long with an insecure teenage girl to work out that her happiness is tremulously yoked to the getting of likes or little hearts on Facebook or Instagram. Take that female insecurity, warp and magnify it in the internet hall of mirrors, and add a longing to be fit and a longing to be popular, and you have a hellish rep recipe for sad and enslaved girls. Now, I think what she says there is tremendously profound, uh, but it's not limited to girls, right? And it's not limited to teenagers. Uh, we, we live in a world where so much of our view of ourselves is conditioned by those outside, what they think of us. Uh, we seek to live our lives in accordance with uh, the narratives that are set up for us and uh, meeting certain standards that uh, we somehow come to believe are the standards to be met. Uh, we, we know what it's like uh, to, to sit and wait. You know, is somebody going to like me? Uh, is, is somebody going to respond to me? Am I going to be seen? Am I going to be known? This is kind of sort of the, the heart of who we are as, as humans. You know, we have a need to believe something. We have a need to, to follow, and that's what I mean by believe. When I, when I say the word believe, I don't mean just simply give intellectual assent to a series of facts. I mean to trust, to follow after something. Some of us are very explicit with that. We can tell you, you know, who or what it is that we believe and are following and we've committed our lives to. Others of us, uh, you know, are, are not quite as, as self-knowing. Um, and, and we may even be fooling ourselves. We may say, you know, I am following Jesus or I am following uh, wealth. And, and we may actually be giving ourselves to, to something else. But the point is, we all have a need uh, to believe, to follow something, to, to have a purpose for our lives, to see some sort of meaning in it. Uh, we also have a need to belong. 
uh, we have a need to be embraced and need to be liked. And, and in this moment that we live in, I think these are two of the things that, that folks are struggling with more than anything at any age, uh, retirement age, uh, teenagers. Uh, you share in common the sense of, I don't matter. What, what I'm doing doesn't contribute to society. I have no meaning anymore. I, I hear that from the old and I hear it from the young. I read about it in newspapers and magazines. There's a sense of meaninglessness to our existence. Belonging, you know, isolation, loneliness uh, it is rampant. You know, we are more connected than we've ever been at any time in history and yet we're more lonely. We're more isolated. We, we have less community though we're connected in so many different ways. It's one of the reasons why you see, uh, you know, happiness, whatever measure that they are using in statistics and polls, continues to decline year after year after year. Now, there's good news in that for the people of God. Do you know what the good news is? That there's good news. Exactly right. Secularism is failing. You know, the idea that we can exist apart from God, the idea that, you know, uh, progress and money and fame and worldly power are what we're after and what we want to achieve, you know, that's been what's held before the West for 300 years since the Renaissance. You know, it's this idea of progress. Uh, but it's failing. I mean, we, all you have to do, if you are honest, is look around and say, it is not meeting people's needs. You know, in America, in the West, you know, we have been the superpower for almost all of our lives. Uh, but I think in the next year, China's GDP is going to double that of America's. Uh, we are not going to be the superpower uh, forever. You know, I don't know how long that will be. I don't know what that will look like. But a question all of us need to ask is this. Does our faith work? You know, do, is what, does what we believe, does it work when maybe the American dream has proved to be empty? And these are the types of questions that come to us in Exodus. You're like, what? Uh, I thought we were going back to the Old Testament. I mean, this is 1446 B.C. How, what is this? Here's the thing. So Exodus, we pick up a story. We pick up the story of God and his people. They've now been in Egypt for 430 years, we're told in Genesis chapter 12, verse 40. Uh, 430 years in which prosperity for the first part marked their existence. They were in the land of Goshen after Joseph uh, was able to lead them there and save not only Israel but also the world during the years of famine. They lived in Goshen. They were very prosperous. God multiplied their numbers. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Recently, though, they've fallen on hard times. Uh, the Pharaoh, Egyptians, have begun to crack down on them because they were frightened of them, frankly. Uh, how is this prosperous people going to, um, going to integrate with the Egyptians? And what happens if our enemies come? And, and so now we come up to a time in their story uh, where they are enslaved, uh, that their, their old way of life in Goshen is no longer sufficient, and there is a new journey 
ahead for them. And again, as we go, I think you'll see a lot of points of connection uh, where we are as a people uh, in 2019 in, in the West with the, the story of the people of Israel. So let me walk us through it. Basically, it, it's this main idea. Life goes on in the presence of our enemies under the protection of Yahweh. If you want to put it in three Ps, you can say prosperity, persecution, and protection. Let me start with the first one. Life goes on. It's a continuing story. It's a story that's picked up from Genesis. I've given you the highlights of it. But there's even more. If you look at verse 7 uh, of this passage, you see this uh, over-the-top description of how fruitful the people of God are. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Actually, there are seven different ways that Moses, as the author of Exodus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the people were fruitful. Uh, Seven being a complete number. Uh, And it's going back to language that you can pick up in a couple of different places. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1. Remember when God said, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? We call it the cultural mandate. Uh, God is continuing that story through the people of Israel. Uh, He's using that same language. In an oral culture, they certainly would have picked up on that and said, okay, nothing's changed from creation. You know, we're still working in this. Then in chapter uh, 12, uh, God promises to Abraham that he was going to enter into a covenant with him, and it was through the people of Israel that he was going to save the world, and he gives them the same language. You know, I will multiply you greatly. Your your name will be great. You will uh, fill the earth exceedingly. All of those things come in Genesis chapter 1. So humanity and Israel are, are specified out, and God continues this. And I think there's something here that is so encouraging for us, particularly if you think about the East, you know, you think about the East and their sort of circular view of narrative, uh, that there's just, you know, life happens and then it, you know, goes back and it devolves and it just sort of happens again. There's no real progress to the story. But what we're told here is that God is much more linear. Uh, in his view of history, and there is a purpose, and there is a meaning, and that God is, is continuing to move the story on, even in the midst of oppression and persecution. And I think that's something else that's so significant for us to grasp here. When we see ourselves as part of this story, God's continuing work through his people to fulfill his purposes, that the earth would be filled with God glorifiers and worshipers, uh, that it would be flourishing under his rule and guidance. When we continue to see the linear nature of that, we can continue to trust God even in the midst of affliction. This is one of the, the big questions that your story, the story that you are inhabiting, needs to answer. If my story loses meaning in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering, when times are not so good, if America is no longer a superpower, if your story changes, loses meaning, or cannot handle that, then I would suggest you have an inferior story to the story of the Scriptures. Because the scriptures help us to navigate those times. We see that even here, you know, affliction comes 
upon the Israelites. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But God is, is moving their story along. Why? Because their story doesn't take place in Egypt. Their story is to take place in the promised land. And, and He is continuing to move them. And He is going to use even their hardship so that the Egyptians will kick them out. And so that the Israelites will be ready to cry out and to follow Yahweh, who incidentally, they're not altogether worshiping in Egypt. You know, we, we see that throughout the book of Exodus. Uh, they grumble, oh, that we were back in Egypt. You know, when in chapter 32, they, they want an idol that they can worship like the gods that they worshiped in Egypt. Joshua chapter 24 tells us that when they were in Egypt, they worshiped other gods. Uh, so, the Israelites had sort of forgotten their story a little bit, but God is going to use the persecution and the oppression in their lives to reconnect them and continue to move the story along because we're in a story that moves. Good news. Secondly, this story, though, is played out in the presence of our enemies. I mentioned that God is moving the story along, and, and surely that is true. You know, we, we see God's sovereign hand throughout uh, the story of the Exodus, but that does not negate the fact that there are real enemies in the here and now. Uh, for the Israelites in Egypt, it took the face of Pharaoh, you know, this godlike human uh, who represented so much to the Egyptians. And you notice, like, how difficult their time is. If you read 8 to 14, you know, come let us deal shrewdly with them, verse 10. Uh, Therefore, verse 11, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Uh, The more the Israelites were oppressed, uh, the more they multiplied. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made them bitter with hard service. Uh, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I mean, there is, there is some sincere, real, personified, uh, concrete resistance uh, that the people of Israel face in Egypt. And, and this is something that is true for all of God's people. You know, we are, are part of a world in which God reigns, but the devil continues to reign, uh, to rage. Uh, and, and, and while God wins and the devil is defeated, we, we still live in that time when, you know, he's a dog on a chain, but he's got a little leash, and he can wreak havoc in our lives. And sometimes it comes in really concrete forms, you know, people that oppress us. Again, if we don't have this as part of your story, how do you live as a Christian in North Korea? You know, how do you live as a Christian in the Sudan? You know, where this is a regular part of the story. Uh, we don't experience it as directly as this right now, uh, but it, it, is, it is experienced like this in other parts of the world. And, and understanding that this is the story that we're in, God wins but the devil rages, uh, helps us to make sense of the world that we live in. 
But we can also take one step back and, and look not only at sort of the, the personified evil, uh, you know, as it is in Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but what it is that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are personifying. You know, it's interesting, you know, as, as the Pharaoh of Egypt, who incidentally is not named, uh, and, and that's significant for a couple of reasons. I'm going to share one with you in just a minute. You know, he probably wore that headdress with the snake on the top, right? You've seen that in, in different uh, pictures and shows, depictions. Uh, it's no accident that the man with the snake on his head represents the snake in the garden. You know, that he is standing for uh, all of the forces of evil that stand against the people of God. And, and that's why I think the omission of his name is significant, theologically significant, because our focus is not on the name of this particular Pharaoh, but on what he represents. One writer puts it this way, Pharaoh is a representative for all of Egypt, including their gods. Thus, the struggle between Egypt and Israel is not about politics, but it's about what you believe, who you serve, who are you going to follow. The absence of Pharaoh's name may ultimately be for theological reasons because the Bible's not trying to answer the question, who is the Pharaoh of the Exodus, to satisfy the curiosity of modern historians. Rather, the scriptures are seeking to clarify for Israel that God was the God of the Exodus. And that's something that we need to recognize. You know, we, we, we don't feel the oppression of the Egyptians but we certainly know the battle that we are in because the battle is not against flesh and blood, but the battle is against principalities and powers. You know, the battle is against ideologies and strongholds that would set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And our call is to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We recognize that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Whether you have a physical taskmaster or not, we know what it's like to be in slavery. We know what it's like to be in bondage. And, and so when we come to the story of the Exodus, we recognize that it so clearly meets the, the story of the cross. It meets the story of Jesus and His great rescue. Not only did the people of God need to be rescued from bondage in Egypt, but we need to be rescued from ourselves. We need to be rescued from the slavery that we get pushed into and the slavery into which we foolishly jump. We need to be rescued from the slavery of addiction and the insane, repeated, destructive behavior that we know will bring us no joy, but we keep pursuing it anyway. We need to be rescued from our bondage to self-pity, to self-preoccupation, to self-righteousness so often in the church. We need to be delivered from the dark holes that we've fallen into of bitterness and resentment. We have been caught in caverns of shame and vain regrets, and we need the Lord to come in and to rescue us from this, those places. We've been held captive in craters of hopelessness and the dungeon of unbelief. 
when we recognize sort of the, the overarching place of this story, it's good versus evil. And that has been there from the garden, and it will be in our midst until Jesus comes again and completely ends the reign of evil as the prince of this world. But until now, it's the story that we're in. But the good news is just as the Israelites were delivered out of Exodus because of the work of their God who defeated all of the principalities and the powers, so we too uh, are delivered out of our own bondage, whether it's bondage of our own making or bondage in which we've been pushed into. We're delivered by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. What did he do on the cross? He disarmed right? The principalities and powers, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, you know, triumphing over them in the cross. Brothers and sisters, what narrative are you in? What are you believing? You know, do you believe, again, not just intellectual assent, but have you given your heart, have you given your soul, is your whole life oriented to following Jesus because he's delivered you from bondage? You see the great invitation there too because I know some of us really are experiencing that battle. Maybe you haven't know, uh, identified it as such, but you're in that. You you know the bondage, the slavery, the caverns, the pits that we've talked about. And you're longing to be delivered from that. And, and that's the great invitation is that this is the story for all God's people. You know, as we, as we surrender to Him, as we orient our hearts and our lives around our King, then we find that we have been delivered as well. The problem is, and, and this is true in our churches today, we want a lot of the benefits of the kingdom, but we don't want the king. And you can't have the kingdom without the king. And, and so the invitation, as always, is to find yourself uh, at the foot of the cross, at the mouth of the empty tomb, uh, embraced by the Lord Jesus. Because he watches over us, and this is the third point, we are protected. There's a protection for God's people. And I want to suggest to you it's in two ways. One is mediated and the second is unmediated. Mediated through people of God, ordinary people of God. How many of you are extraordinary? I didn't think so. Uh, now, we all see ourselves as ordinary, right? We... we we, we live in ordinary time, in ordinary places. Very few of us, uh, you know, are seen as extraordinary by this world. That's why I love this little narrative of Shipra and Pua. You know, two midwives, two doulas who are just going on doing their work until suddenly they are brought in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world. And he says, listen, we've got a problem. There are too many Hebrews. I want you to do something, incidentally, that is legal in our country uh, in certain states. I want you to, as these children are being born, to take their lives. 
You know, we, we see the horrificness of this, whether it's on the birthing stool or immediately throwing them into the Nile uh, to be devoured by crocodiles or to drown. We recognize that this is not the story of life that we've been brought into. And these two ordinary women recognize this as well. And I love verse 17. You know, here they are, brought in front of Pharaoh. And again, Pharaoh not named, Shipra and Pua are named. The ordinary, non-powerful ones down through the ages. Why? Verse 17, but they feared God. It, it really, I mean, that's an amazing place just to stop and to bring these verses, 15 to 22, into our present time. And all they are saying to us about life. All they are saying to us about standing in the ordinary places in which we have been called. And speaking forward the truth of God's word. Why? Because our hearts are oriented to Him. We are surrendered to Him. We fear God as opposed to governments and people, no matter how powerful they might be. It's amazing what God can accomplish through ordinary people like Shipra and Pua, like you and like me. It's not that we are extraordinary, but it's that God gives us the words to say at that time. And you notice you know, the effect that it has. God continues with His people in verse 20. You know, God dealt well, dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people continued to multiply, and they grew very strong despite all of the uh, attempts of Pharaoh to wipe out the people. God was there in the shadows, in the background, continuing to bless His people, and they didn't know it. You know, again, as we're going to see throughout this, you know, Moses has to be, who, who am I going to take? Sent me to them? I mean, they, they've forgotten who Yahweh is, many of them. Uh, but God is there continuing to bless him, continuing to build his story. His presence, which is going to become such a big part of the story in terms of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the presence of God is with them every step along the way. And that's what I would encourage you with as we close, my friends. You know, that passage that Jared and Sarah had, had picked for Camellia is just so beautiful. Be strong and very courageous. Why? Because I am with you. I am with you. As Jesus was leaving the earth, he says, all power and authority are given to you. And lo, behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Here are the Israelites in Egypt. They've been there for 430 years. You could say in a certain way they've stagnated on their journey. They lost their way. They've forgotten who Yahweh is, but in His grace, He is still with them. He's still blessing them. He still is accomplishing His purpose in them. What a comfort for me and you, because I know day by day I'm like, God, what a wreck I am. 
I, I continually forget the journey that I'm on, and I find myself in this, you know, eddy, uh, in this, you know, side stream. I, I forget where I'm going, but God says, look it, I'm with you, and I'm going to keep you on the right path, and I'm going to keep this story going. So I hope you see Exodus 1 as an invitation, an invitation to believe, you know, this God, Yahweh, the covenant personal God who has a relationship with His people, continues to come to us, promises us His presence, and to belong to Him. He's going to take Him out in the wilderness, and He's going to say, I want you for my treasured possession. And that's still His word for you and for me today. You are my treasured possession. Will you be a follower of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story that uh, just so intersects with where we are today. Sometimes uh, we forget that. Uh, we think we're 3,500 years past. Certainly this old book has nothing to say to us. But then we find that once again, you are the same yesterday, today, forever, that we are in a story that continues, that has a beginning, has a middle, uh, and, and we're moving towards an end. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet us and that as we see the failure of secularism around us, uh, as we uh, exist in this post-Christian culture, may we accept the King along with the kingdom. And may we follow our leader. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.